time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. People, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to Cold War, this time episode 47, Ray. Hello. So, um, at the end of 46, we were talking about uh, threesomes, and uh, it was all fun and games, consensual, oiled up, big threesomes. Right. This episode, like warning... Mm. Now, for the little kids listening or people who, yeah. you know, I know a lot of people like to play this show in front of their children because uh, Ooh, they think it's fun. You might want to just... Uh, Skip this one. Yeah, no, turn it up. Turn it up. Like, you know. <laughs> Shit. Yes. Uh, so this episode, we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite rapist. Um, <laughs> Lavrentia Beria. Um, mm-hmm. Or Uncle Rapey. Yeah, Lavy B, as they called him, Uncle Rapey. Because um, <laughs> he appeared at Yalta for the first time at this dinner that we were talking about last time, uh, the end of day four, February 8, 1945, Uncle Rapey showed up. Now, um, for those of you who don't know or don't remember who Berea was... He was the head of the dreaded People's Commissariat of Internal Affairs. Um, basically, think of him as the head of the KGB, basically. Like, you know, that, that what didn't exist that came later, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, he was the head of the secret police. And uh, he was a nasty, nasty piece of work, as we'll see. Even Stalin kind of was afraid of him in, to a degree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I found it interesting. The uh, so he's in charge of the NKVD, and he's in charge of uh, organizing the partisans behind German lines uh, during the war. And so, I mean, this guy is so tough. It's pretty much he's pretty much in charge of uh, just out and out criminals. Um, obviously, probably decent people at one point who the Germans ruined their lives. And so, he has a lot of secrets on a lot of people. His job is to know a little bit about everything. He's in charge of the gulags, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit or we've covered it before. Uh, and so, yeah, he is a very powerful man. He seeks to please Stalin. And at the same time, he is someone that, like you said, Stalin, Stalin does respect slash fear. He knows where all the uh, skeletons are buried, and he has made a lot of people disappear over the years. So he has a lot of power. And he finally gets to show up on the international stage. He was tough. How tough was he? I'm tough. Yeah. When my girlfriend says she doesn't want to see me anymore, I just poke her in the eyes. I'm tough. I'm into punk yoga. That's where you stay on somebody else's head. <laughs> when I get into a cab and the cab driver says, where are you going? I say, none of your business, pal. I'm tough. 
You know what I had for breakfast? Anything I want, pal. My rice bubbles are too scared to go snap, crack, and pop. They just sit in the pack and go, shh, here he comes. <laughs> Think about it. I'm tough. I'm so tough I wasn't breastfed when I was a baby. I went straight on to cappuccinos. Uh, it doesn't hold up well. Classic Australian comedy from the early 80s. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't hold up. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> no, yeah. Now, Berea was 46 at the time, uh, uh, one of Stalin's top lieutenants. Uh, Stalin had brought him from his native Georgia, obviously where Stalin was mm-hmm. also from, to Moscow in '38 to replace the guy who was the architect of the Great Terror, Nikolai Yetsov, who uh, unfortunately had uh, had to retire uh, <laughs> from his position as the head of the state secret police, uh, retired with a bullet uh, between his eyes. I mean, that, that was uh, how he had to go out. Now, I don't know about you, Ray, but, you know, one of, mm-hmm. one of my life policies is when somebody offers me a job, uh, yeah. or these days in my marketing business, somebody offers me, yeah, we'd like to... I, I always ask the question... Can you tell me if my predecessor was shot between the eyes? Because that's uh, <laughs> no disrespect intended, sir. But I just have a policy that I won't. Ex- information. I won't accept a position uh, if my predecessor was executed. <laughs> uh, that's just me. Like it's a religious. <laughs> yeah. It's a religious so that's why I'm thing. Still alive. Yeah. <laughs> it's a religious thing. I just. I. I am not. You know. I. I. I just have a policy. You know. I just can't see myself taking on the job where the person before me was executed. Um, unless, of no course, there's it. a lot of money in it, then fuck it. Yeah, I'll take, I'll yeah. take it. You know. yeah. if, I, if I could just mention something about Nikolai real quick. So he was in charge of the NKVD from 36 to 38, obviously during the worst part of the Great Purge. But then at some point, Stalin is like, I, I got to start getting rid of this guy. But like um, Beria, he's too powerful at this point. So Stalin says, I want you to keep your current job. No problems there. I love everything you're doing. Love the, the flow of blood in the streets. But in April of 1938, Stalin makes him the people's commissar for water transport, which sounds kind of weird. Murder on one hand, making sure water gets around. But anyway, so he does the job and he's able to do both jobs, but obviously he can't focus on both of them as much as he would like to. And so Stalin begins to weaken him. He begins to give more responsibilities to other people. And eventually one of the people that uh, Nikolai did not um, uh, execute, he protected him during the Great Purge, defects to Japan. Stalin finally has his excuse and has, um, you know, he gives him the one bullet uh, to the head. Uh, so he is removed and now it's Beria's turn. But like you, like you said, Beria has got to be a little bit anxious knowing that the guy before him didn't do so well. And so he is going to try for a very long time, and he does it pretty well, to be absolutely loyal to Stalin and to give him everything that Stalin asks for. And Beria rides this out um, for, for a number of years, but at the same time, he knows how to have fun, and he uses his power to swage his desires. I don't know any other way to put that. Yeah. Now, Beria had a really interesting... Uh, upbringing. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, ever read his autobiography. Um, no. Yeah, fascinating guy. Um, was raised by a very religious mother. Um, in fact, she was so like religious. Uh, yes. Uh, she was so religious that she rarely left her church. 
She'd get up in the morning, go to church, spend all day in the church, leave church, go home, go to bed, get up, go to the church. Um, mm. She died in church. Um, and he had a sister who was born deaf mute. Um, and he had a brother, they think, but he doesn't even mention his brother in his autobiography. So they don't really know what's going on there, whether he was dead or they had a falling out or whatever. But um, Beria attended a technical school, joined the Bolsheviks in March of 1917, but then also worked for the anti-Bolshevik group, the <laughs> Musavadists, around about the same time. So even at an early age, uh, he's playing both sides for some reason. Uh, I don't fully understand. Um, anyway, they, the the city where he was based in Baku was captured by the Red Army in 1920. Beria was safe from execution due to the intervention of probably uh, Sergei Kirov. Um, and uh, when he's in prison, he uh, meets Nina Gekekori, Gekekori, uh, who is the niece of his cellmate. Uh, and they eloped on a train. She was 17, a trained scientist, came from an aristocratic family. And so uh, a couple of years later, at the age of 20, he started his career in state security um, when he was hired by the Azerbaijan Democratic Republic Security Service. Uh, yeah. And then eventually he joins the Cheka, and, uh, which was, as you said, the Bolshevik secret police original version of that. And it kind of just stays there, stays around, stays in Georgia, goes uh, up through the ranks, becomes sort of the head of the OGPU in Georgia uh, before Stalin eventually taps him and says, hey, listen, um, Yechov, Yetov is dead. Uh, <laughs> How would you like his job? How yeah. Much, how yeah. would you like this? Just wipe the blood off. Now... Uh, as we'll see later on, Beria met a very similar fate after Stalin died, but uh, which is a great story in and of itself. Um, but briefly after Stalin died, Beria was the number two most powerful man in the Politburo. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, nearly became number one. He nearly, nearly got the ring, man, nearly made it to the top. Right. And the rest of the rest of the Politburo were terrified of him, um, so they ganged up on him, led by Khrushchev, to take him down. But we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about this in a lot more detail later on. But uh, yeah, it's a great yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. No, no one has a happy ending. Very few people have a happy ending uh, in Soviet Russia. That's just the way it is. Well, certainly, while Stalin was still alive in Beria, it, it was it, absolutely. There, there were, it wasn't as bad afterwards. I mean, it wasn't great, but it wasn't as wasn't as bad. There was nothing like the Great Purge um, afterwards, right? Except Beria. I think he was the last <coughs> of them. Um, but yeah, he was the head not only of the security apparatus in the Soviet Union, but also the head of the Gulag labor camps. He was also the head of the Soviet efforts to build a nuclear bomb and for atomic espionage. But on this night at the dinner. In uh, Coretz, uh, February 8th, he made a good impression. Sarah Churchill, yeah. Sarah Oliver, Sarah Churchill, uh, wrote to her mother, the head of the OGPU was there. I recite, 
I recited to him like my five Russian senses, one of which is... Sorry, she's not Valley Girl, she's British. One of which is, can I have a hot water bottle, please? To which... <laughs> To which Beria replied, I am going to rape you later. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> Actually, he replied, according to her letter, I cannot believe, uh, I cannot believe that you need hot water bottles. Surely there is enough fire in you. <laughs> it looked as yeah. if there was a future to this conversation. But at this point, dinner was served. He also said, do you have any Georgian in you? She said, no. He said, would you like some? <laughs> no? Well, you're going to get it anyway because I'm a rapey motherfucker. He is saying this to Churchill's daughter. He is pretty much saying, you look like a hot piece of ass and great in bed. Ah. That's, you know, obviously mixing his metaphors, whatever. But <coughs> he is saying this to Churchill's daughter. I mean, uh, I mean, just the balls on this guy. If, if I could uh, carry on with Barry a little bit, not only did, you know, was he flirting with her openly, and, and I just love the fact that she says, it looked as if there was, a, there was a future to this conversation, but dinner was served, so obviously she's like, okay, yeah, I can listen to you talk, dirty old man, I'm not afraid of you, bring it, bring it, so, but, but dinner is served, the bell rings, I guess, I don't know, but I just thought it was interesting that it's, in that same evening, he spoke to the British ambassador, Sir Archibald Clare, Clark Care, excuse me, about the sex life of fish. So, I mean, I don't know how he was able to turn that into something disgusting, but I'm sure he did. Good for him. But uh, the one thing that everybody picked up on, almost everybody, was that he was a strong man. He was a powerful man, very, very forceful and extremely alert and sharp and intelligent. And and even though he was trying to like like Stalin, pull it back a little bit and just be this older guy or whatever, he was. I don't know. He he was a monster. He was a Dexter in his own in his own way. Yeah, well, uh, who was it? I think it was uh, Kathleen Harriman described him in her letter the next day as little and fat with thick lenses, which gave him a sinister look, but quite genial. How do you look sinister and genial at the same time? Yeah, well, I've seen photos of him as a younger man. Like in 1920, he looked, uh, you know, like a, a, a Soviet intellectual. Um, okay. But uh, later on in life, yeah, he, uh, I don't know, looked like an older version of that, uh, older, fatter man. Um, mm -hmm. I've got a photo here in front of me. He's not too fat here. I don't know when this is. It looks like late. He's just sort of balding, little pince-nez glasses. Um, yeah, you know, he's got Stalin's daughter who looks like about six sitting on his lap and she has a look on her face yeah. that's like, get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> uh, Daddy, where are you? Well, he's sitting right behind them at a table studying uh, maps and letters by the looks of it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what date uh, this family is, uh, this photo is, but uh, yeah, it's a bit terrifying. Um, I was turned on at the first episode, but not, that's gone. That's gone now. Um, now, when Roosevelt first noticed Beria at the dinner on February 8th, he mm -hmm. uh, didn't know who he was. So he asked Stalin, who was the man in the pince-nez? Stalin identified him as our Himmler. Ooh, too soon? Now, I, I don't know that anyone wants to be referred to as our Himmler. <laughs> Not even Himmler didn't want to be referred to as our Himmler. I mean, 
That's that's harsh, man. Uh, Is that ever going to be funny? <laughs> it's never no. going to be funny. No. Uh, uh, now Roosevelt was apparently rather offended by that, um, and but Beria overheard Stalin <laughs> refer to him as similar, and he just smiled. Uh, a weak smile is referred to as, but uh, yeah, like <laughs> I think he was thinking, oh, him, Himmler's, uh, Himmler's okay, but he don't rape people, as far as I know. So you know, <laughs> I think I, I think I'm, I'm worse than Himmler. Actually, I think that's an insult to or, Himmler or, to call me Himmler. It could have been like, it could have been like, <laughs> good one, boss. <laughs> you know, it just creeps me out. <laughs> Now, so Archibald Clark Kerr toasted him as the man who looks after our bodies. Ooh. I guess he's <sighs> referring to the fact that he's uh, the NKVD head. He's, I don't know, making sure they're not getting poisoned or assassinated or something like that. Beria doesn't Unless say anything. Unless it's ordered by Stalin. Yeah. But Churchill... Uh, apparently didn't find this very funny. Walked up to Clark Kerr. Again, I want to point out that Clark Kerr is an Australian, so we need to factor this in. Um, And according to Kathleen Harriman, Churchill walks up to Clark Kerr, instead of clinking glasses, shook his finger at him and said, Be careful. Be careful. In her terms, in other words, shut up. As in, don't make jokes about barrier. Because he will bury ya. You will disappear. <laughs> he will bury ya. Bury ya. Will bury ya. That's for my rap like song. That. I'm working on that for my rap song I'm doing about bury ya later. Um, <laughs> oh now, the, uh, the night before the altar conference, one of Beria's assistants, Pavel Sudoplatov, actually nice. warned Aravel, Aver, Aravel? Averil Harriman Avril. About mm-hmm. potentially, potentially dangerous liaisons that his daughter Kathleen had been having with some Russian young men in <sighs> Moscow. Ooh. But it was just a friendly warning. He was trying to develop a relationship by giving the, you know, the father, the Westerner, um, some just a warning about his daughter, which is the equivalent of, you know, walking up to somebody, uh, excuse, please, I don't mean to offend, but uh, your daughter, bit of a whore, so you might just want to watch that. I mean, how how is that supposed to build positive relations yeah. between the Russians and the Americans? But he thought he was doing his father a service. So good for him. <laughs> Your daughter. I, we've been watching her. <laughs> she's 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 fucking Russian man. <laughs> we have photos. You want to see the photos? And popcorn. Yeah. Now. <clears throat> At Beria's trial in 1953, uh, mm-hmm. it became known that he was the subject of a significant number of rape and sexual assault allegations. Um, mm. But it's it's a little bit disputed here how how well mm. this is proven versus there was just a lot of um, rumours running around. Now, right. whether or not these were uh, real or not, we don't know. Certainly, 
I think most historians tend to assume that there was some veracity to them. But of course, he's the head of the secret police uh, during all of this time. So it's not like there's going to be a lot of information. There's some testimony, though, from some of his guards, as we'll see. Now, uh, his wife, Nina, uh, always uh, denied that there was any truth to these rumours, even in 1990. She was interviewed. She said, Lavrenti was busy working day and night. When did he have time for love with this legion of women? Cool. Wait, did you say Cosby or Beria? <laughs> I know, right? It's so hard. I keep getting them confused. Um, now, in 2003, his case file in the Soviet archives was opened. And it recorded that he had committed dozens of sexual assaults during the years he was the chief of the NKVD. The records contain the official testimony from Colonel R.S. Sarkasov and Colonel V. Nadaraya, who were two of Beria's most senior bodyguards. They claimed that on warm nights during the war years, Beria was often driven slowly through the streets of Moscow in his armoured limousine, and uh, he would point out young women, a bit like David Lee Roth at the height of Van Halen on stage, <laughs> point, pointing out women in the audience to uh, his uh, roadies who would go right. and give them backstage passes. Um, but slightly more <laughs> rapey. Um <laughs> I don't think David Lee. I don't think David Lee Roth, in his prime, needed to rape women. No. Um, today, Fight him off, maybe. Today, maybe. <laughs> now that he's yeah, going bald, he's got to slip him something. Yeah. <laughs> nah, Dave's still ripped, man. Like Dave is. Uh, oh yeah. He's uh, he's sixty, sixty-one, sixty-two. Dave. Um, same birthday as me, tenth of October, but uh, fifteen years older than I am, so I'd make him early sixties. But man, like he's still ripped, dude. He's still, uh, still yeah. in very good shape. Yeah, but maybe yeah, all those years know. of jumping. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention uh, martial arts, man. Like he basically spends his entire time doing martial arts when he's not on stage. Anyway, uh, yeah. So he'd point to women out at the window of his limousine. <laughs> God. And his uh, men would go out and detain them and escort them to his dasha where there would be wine and a feast. And then mm. he would take them after the meal to his soundproof office and rape them. Uh, not is, 50 shades of grey. Okay. Is, is the right. claim of his senior bodyguards. Again, that's not proof, um, but, uh, right. you know, it's, it's at least some sort of primary evidence. Now, it gets even worse. His bodyguards then claimed that after the women were released, as they were leaving the Dasha, they were presented with a bouquet of flowers. Uh, thank you? Well, yeah, the implication, I think, is that if they accepted it, it meant that it was consensual. Uh, or if someone just shoved something in your hand after you've been raped, I would imagine you would just reflexively reflexively grab it. So 
Not perfect, but I, I think it made him feel better. It was like, this has been a lovely evening. We started with <laughs> wine and dinner, and we end, I give you flowers, because I am a romantic rapist. Uh, if they, That's the name of our band, everybody. If they refused the flowers, they would be arrested and thrown into a gulag. Now, in one incident, his chief bodyguard, Sarkasov, reported that a woman who went through this whole, whole process ran out of his office, he forgot to lock the door, um, before she was raped. And mm-hmm. Sarkasov mistakenly gave her the flowers anyway. He just thought he'd been quick. Oh, God. Yeah. And uh <laughs> yelled at her as she ran away, that's not a bouquet, it's a wreath. May it rot on your grave. Damn. She was a lover. She was arrested by the NKVD the next day. <sighs> now, there Damn. were also times when women submitted to Beria's sexual advances in exchange for the promise of getting their relatives freed from a gulag. Mm. There's a very famous case that I read about the well-known Soviet actress Tatiana Okunovskaya. Okunovskaya. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh Tatiana Okunovskaya. She was picked up under the pretense that uh, they wanted her to perform for the Politburo. Instead, she was taken to Beria's Dasha, where he offered to free her father and grandmother from the gulag if she submitted. He then raped her, telling her, scream or not, it doesn't matter. This is her own account, by the way, of this. Right. It doesn't matter because you're in soundproofed office and I head of NKVD, so, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, Anyway, meanwhile... Uh, he knew that her father and grandmother had been executed months earlier. Oh, God. Ugh. Now, she was arrested the next day and sentenced to 10 years solitary confinement Damn. in the gulag, which she served and survived. Oh, my God. And lived to uh, write about it. Like, she ended up back into acting, too, when she got out. Can you imagine this life, no. man? You're raped by this evil motherfucker and then thrown, <laughs> as reward, thrown into solitary confinement for 10 years in a gulag. Jeez. Just... And then to somehow pick up your life? Yeah. Jeez. Okay, road trip to Russia. We're going to find his grave. We're going to dig him up. Do the same to him. Well. Oh, Ray. Sorry. There's a line, Ray. And we cross it often. I think I crossed it. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Now, Stalin apparently knew about Beria's rapiness. Um, According, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how much proof there is of this but this is, seems to be fairly well accepted by stories that he knew about it but kind of indulged barrier because he considered him important uh, although mm-hmm. he once said he didn't trust him uh, there was another instance where stalin learned that his daughter 
was alone with Beria at his house. Fuck. He telephoned her and told her to leave the house immediately. Yeah, get, get the fuck out. <laughs> now, Jeez, get out. Stop and think about how terrifying Stalin was. <laughs> and yes. yet he he believed that Beria might rape his Stalin's daughter. Yeah. Now that's I, a level of yeah. psychopathy that is hard to contemplate. I mean, you can be Stalin and you can have this guy tortured for years and then finally killed, but you can't have your daughter unraped. So if it does happen, yeah, you can you can get the guy, but he obviously cared about his daughter. He didn't want her to go through that. So yeah, wisely called her up, get the hell out, um, and don't ever go back. But how fucked up does Stalin need to think Barrier is to think that Barrier would even rape yeah. Stalin's daughter? Stalin's daughter! <laughs> I know. Oh, and the God. fact that it's a real possibility. I mean, this guy is fucked up and he's in charge of a lot of men with a lot of guns and obviously acted accordingly. Now, apparently, according to Sarkozov, again, the head bodyguard for Beria, Beria told him to keep a running list of the names and phone numbers of all the women that he had raped, mm-hmm. but eventually told him to destroy the list because it was a security risk. But Sarkozov right. kept a secret copy of it just as, as his own form Good for of him. Uh, yeah, backup. Now, Kelly like James uh, Comey. After Stalin died, uh, Sarkisov passed the list to uh, Viktor Abakumov, who had been the mm-hmm. head of Smirsch during uh, the war. Everyone who's uh, read a James Bond film will know Smirsch plays a role in that. Um, right. It was sort of the umbrella organization for the sort of Red Army counterintelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, the baddies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you know what's, where, where the name Smirsch came from? Have you covered that in your WW2 no. show? It was actually coined by Stalin, because we know he was a marketing genius. Uh, right. Shit. <laughs> it was actually an, it was an acronym that meant death to spies. Uh, mm. Death to Spies, and he abbreviated to Smirsh. <laughs> he seriously, marketing. Keep it simple, keep it short, keep it simple. Genius. It stick yeah. in the brain easier. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, in in uh, the 007 novels, it's an acronym for Specialnia Metodo Razo Blackinia Shipyonov, which is basically meant special methods of spy detection. Um, but it was a real organization that was more of a portmanteau, I guess, than an acronym of uh, death to spies. Anyway, right. um, so yeah, so he passes, Sarkasov passes this list of rape victims to Abakumov, who was the former head of Smirsch. And he was then uh, the head of the MGB, which was the successor to the NKVD. And they were building mm-hmm. a case against Beria because all of these guys, you know, wanted to bring Beria down. Now, Stalin apparently found out even before he died that Sarkisov 
was keeping a list of dirt on Beria, and he he demanded, "Send me everything this asshole writes down." <laughs> right. So even Stalin, you know, is building a case against Beria in case he needs to bring him down. I, I, I believe, Damn. I believe Stalin, if he was scared of anyone, he was right. scared of Berea. And here's this Churchill's daughter flirting with a guy. Yes. Oh, God. Now, Sarkisov so, apparently also yeah. reported that Berea had contracted syphilis during the war. Uh, uh, which he was secretly got treatment for without even Stalin or the Politburo knowing. So, uh, Barry apparently admitted to this during his interrogation before his execution, too. That's so are you going to say something? No, I was just going to say, so out of everything we just covered in the last 20 minutes or whatever, you know, these three daughters are there at Yalta around this guy. So, oh my God. And like you said earlier on the last episode, Stalin, wisely enough, did not bring his son or daughter to the party. Yeah. But before we move on, I haven't finished talking about yeah. Beria. I'm sorry. So, uh, the Russian government has acknowledged that they have sucked Kasov's written list of Beria's victims. They mm-hmm. didn't. They acknowledged it in 2003, and the victims' names will be released in 2028. Now, the good news is, I'm sure we'll still be doing this show in 2028. <laughs> we'll probably still be in Yalta. Yeah, so we should try and be in Moscow. We can cover that live. Um, now. Evidence suggests that Berea not only abducted and raped women, but also had some of them murdered. Now, mm-hmm. what was his villa in Moscow is now the Tunisian embassy. <laughs> How fucking gruesome yeah. is that? Um, a, why does Tunisia even have an embassy? Uh, <laughs> like, seriously, I think of Tunisia as a big desert where they shot the Star Wars film. Um, right. I, you know, I guess yeah, it's got a population of 11 million people, I guess. All right. I'm sorry, Tunisian people, for besmirching yeah. your reputation. Of course, you have an embassy. Good, good, more. But you, you good deserve you. a better embassy. Yeah, yeah. It's, you got the, the bottom of the barrel embassies there. Anyway, in the mid 1990s, they were doing work uh, in the grounds and they accidentally dug up the remains of several young women buried in the gardens. Mm. Uh, According to a BBC documentary, uh, Beria spent his nights having teenagers abducted from the streets and brought here for him to rape. Those who resisted were strangled and buried in his wife's rose garden. Now, Sarkisov and Nadaria's testimony has been partially corroborated by Edward Ella Smith, who's an American who served in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow after the war. He says that Beria's escapades were common knowledge amongst embassy personnel at the time because his house was on the same street as a residence for the Americans. And the people who lived there saw girls being brought to Beria's house late at night in a limousine and then not leaving. Yeah, that's not normal. Now, you'll be happy to know, just to wrap this up, we will do his story uh, more later on in the series, uh, but uh, you'll be happy to know that before he was shot through the forehead himself, 
uh, they had to stuff a rag in his mouth to stop him from screaming and bawling and whimpering. Yeah, he gets it. A bit like a bit like that uh, American douchebag in the news this week who was captured on video abusing some Muslims on the beach, acting all tough. Yeah. Fuck you. For This is my fucking country. You're not going to take my Christianity away from me. And then he got arrested uh, for being intoxicated and abusive. And the mugshot as if him crying his <laughs> eyes sounds like a little baby. <laughs> God. Well, yeah, except, he deserves to be ridiculed for the rest of his life. Except he didn't rape and murder women. I mean, there is that difference. Right. But apart from that, very, There's very that similar. line. Right. Right, 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 right. So meanwhile, as you were saying, Roosevelt, Churchill and Harriman all had their daughters cavorting with Berea at this dinner at the Caretz, uh Palace. And Rapey Jr. was there. Yes, Rapey Jr. Well, that's a bit harsh. We don't know that it that, is. That's I yet. apologize. Beria's son, Sergo, not at the dinner, but he was at Yalta in a very different capacity. Yeah. He was handpicked by Stalin, who had known him since childhood, who he also had a, uh, he also had a, an enthusiasm for electronics, so obviously um, that kind of stuff right there is going to get Stalin's attention. So he's uh, he joins a group of electronic specialists and interpreters, and Stalin is going to have a very specific need for this young man's not only loyalty to him, and he's purposefully been kept away from foreigners, but obviously for his special skills. Stalin has a, something particular in mind for him. Yeah, in 1943, when Sergo was still a student in Leningrad, Stalin handpicked him to basically head up the bugging team that were bugging Roosevelt's quarters in the Soviet mm-hmm. embassy in Tehran during the big threesome there. And then uh, in February '45, he was recalled from his studies again to perform the same function in Yalta. So obviously uh, he trusts, Stalin trusts Sergo implicitly, and mm-hmm. uh, his knowledge of electronics made him the ideal guy to uh, be the head of the, the bugging of the U.S. Now, the electronic surveillance team weren't allowed to party with their counterparts yeah. at Yalta. They weren't even allowed to drink while they're on duty. The rest of the Soviet security detail were encouraged to get shit-faced drunk with the British ah. and American counterparts because, as we said before, this is a good way of, of getting intelligence, so getting people drink, drunk, and they will tell you shit that they wouldn't tell you when they were sober. Um, Sergo noted in his memoirs that uh, at drinking parties during the conference, the American and British guards often fell under the table and regularly oh, had God. to be carried to their bedrooms. Security breach. Security breach. <laughs> was it, there was God. a big hullabaloo, I think, uh, a, a year or two ago, where Obama's yeah. security, security guys were... Drugs and hookers. Drugs and hookers. <laughs> yes. Yeah, baby. And we're not even joking. Like, normally when we no, joke about not. <laughs> hookers and drugs, we are joking, but they really were... There was like a bunch yeah. of them too that were oh, yeah. suspended amount, yeah. or fired or demoted or fined or something for 
do, the above. doing coke and banging hookers when they were supposed about to, that. supposedly guarding Obama. Well, these guys were just getting shit-faced drunk. Now, there's Michael Riley, the second Riley yeah. to make an appearance in today's episodes, was the head of FDR's security detail. I think I've mentioned him briefly before. Mm-hmm. Uh, he bragged, though, later on, that when they arrived in the Crimea, his boys outdrank the Soviets eight to one. By which, by which he meant eight Americans were still on their feet at the end of the night, and only one Soviet. I'm 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 gonna have to call bullshit on that one. I mean, I don't know when Soviet when our Russians start drinking vodka, but you gotta imagine it's pretty young. It's just <laughs> it's part in their of their bottle. culture. Yeah, <laughs> in their bottle in the mom's teat. Yeah. But uh, I I just imagine this is com- complete bullshit, and especially the excuse he you know he's like, yeah, it was really tough the next day. We you know we obviously we were hungover, but we won through sheer patriotism. And to me, that's the America. moment when the when the Cold War starts. Drinking at the drink. We went through patriotism. Ugh! And then they went and throw, threw up for the next couple of days. But yeah, so I just can't imagine the Russians falling down and the Americans still standing. I just don't see it. Oh my God. That oh, I laughed so hard during that, man. That, uh, books! <laughs> Bath of Crowns! I'm like, what? What? Oh my God. Now, for th- this is something I know that all the Americans are, have been dying to know since, uh, since we started this particular series. Um, you're, th- you're sitting there thinking, well, didn't the Americans go in and debug the place where Roosevelt's going to say, I mean, like, duh, 101. Of course the Americans did, but the Russians are so good at this, and they finally matched up the paint color on the wall with the color of the listening device that they didn't get them all. So the Russians were still able to pick up a lot of the conversations, uh, either in the bathroom or wherever, that FDR was having uh, with either Churchill or his uh, his uh, main representative. So again, we got a lot of them, but we didn't get all of the bugs. Yeah. Now... Apparently, according to Beria, instructions to members of the Allied delegations not to discuss sensitive issues didn't really work because they were just talking about <laughs> shit all the time. In the hallway, going to the bathroom. In the bathroom, yeah, in their wife fronts, uh, waiting to use the bathroom in the morning. Explain, now, explain something to me. So Beria says, oh, by the way, don't talk about sensitive shit outside certain rooms. You never know who's listening. No, 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 no. The, no, the fucking Allied delegations were given instructions by their own security details not gotcha. to talk about sensitive shit, but they did anyway, and he recorded the whole thing. They not only had oh, bugged, gotcha. they had not only bugged the accommodation, but apparently they also had directional microphones that they could use to listen. Uh, from Damn. a distance outside the palace. <laughs> they were hiding in bushes with those, you know, <laughs> things you see in spy movies, like listening listening through the windows. Um, so Sergo Beria was responsible for recording and transcribing all of FDR's conversations at Yalta. The transcripts were then given to the uh, general staff of the Red Army. And uh, by the way, mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't, I don't think we mentioned earlier, not only was he an electronics enthusiast, Sergo, but he could he knew English and German as well. So with that, That's right. That, Thank those you. things made him perfect for this. So he did the transcription of the recordings as well himself. Now, 
On the eve of the Tehran conference back in November 43, Stalin had personally selected members of the eavesdropping team and conducted one-on-one interviews with them, uh, which would have been slightly terrifying, I imagine. And apparently, according to Sergo's memoirs, when he was being interviewed by Stalin, this was Stalin's speech. I have had you brought here along with some other young men who have never had dealings with foreigners because I want to entrust you with a mission that is delicate and morally reprehensible. You are going to listen to conversations that Roosevelt will have with Churchill, with the other British, and with his own circle. I must know everything in detail. Be aware of all shades of meaning. I am asking you for all that because it is now a question of the second front and how it will be settled. I know that Churchill is against it. It is important that the Americans support us in this matter. The key point here being Stalin was pretending that he thought bugging was morally (laughs) reprehensible. Now, maybe he did. Maybe morally hate- reprehensible. Personally, yeah. I am immoral. I don't have morals, so it does not bother me at all. <laughs> yeah, I feel really bad, but, but we are in such a desperate situation. We have to have this, but I need you, the nuances, the inflections, the tones, everything. I need you to give this to me. So obviously this young man spoke pretty darn good English, even though he had never mixed with foreigners before. But Stalin... Again, Stalin didn't have to do this. He could have just said, I'm ordering you to listen in and tell me everything and, and, and the tone behind it. He could have just ordered it. But no, he puts on this front. He gives this perception of himself. He, he, he plays a part. And that is just going to continue through Yalta as well. Now, apparently what shocked young Sergo the most wasn't that he was being asked to bug the Allies' conversations, but is what he heard in the taped conversations that truly shocked him, Ray. Now, this is a man whose father regularly abducted, raped and murdered teenage girls, and that was not as shocking as what he heard on the tapes from the British and American embassies. Yeah. I think it was, um, was it Alec... Codigan, or how do you say his name, spoke to Churchill on the telephone when he was visiting the British embassy in Moscow. And, and Codigan uh, chided Churchill for making a decision without talking to him first, which makes sense. That's his job is to advise because he's there. He knows the ins and the outs. But Sergo was just amazed. He said, if any of the deputy people's commissars, forget deputies, even members of the government themselves and members of the Politburo of the Central Committee had ventured to speak to Stalin in such a tone, and he was so terrified he couldn't finish the sentence because he knew what would freaking happen to anybody who spoke up to Stalin like that. And here's this guy bitch-slapping Churchill over the phone. He is amazed that any leader could be spoken to in such a way. He apparently told his father how shocked he was, and uh, Big Daddy Barrier supposedly said, but the relations among members of government are entirely different here. Any one of them has the right to defend his point of view and contest the Premier's opinion. But in other countries, they don't even uh, rape and bury girls in backyard. It's very different in Russia. (laughs) 
topsy turvy kind. Yeah, yeah, very crazy. So, and again, do you think even when he said that, the way he said it to me, that quote, it's very careful. He's got to think that even that statement is going to get back to Stalin. It was very, very balanced. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. Balanced? How so? What do you mean? No, I'm no, just said he, no, the way he said it. what you're talking he, about. He could have just said, you know, no, he could have just said, yeah, you know, not everybody's like a fucking weirdo like our boss where you could talk shit back to them and men can exchange ideas and disagree, not like our, like our, you know, psychopathic uh, leader. So just the way he said it makes it sound like he knew that even maybe he was being bugged. I just thought it was a very, very diplomatic oh, way to no, put well, what he so- was saying. Sergo wrote this in his memoirs years after his father and Stalin were both dead, so I don't think he's being delicate there. I think he's just saying no, that I'm his just father saying said... W- hmm. Right. Okay, right. I see what you're saying. I thought, I thought it was said, like, right at the conference. No, 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 no. This is... Well, maybe. I don't know when he had this... This is back in Tehran. I don't know when he had this conversation with his father, but uh, I, I, I don't think Beria thought that Beria's own bugging men were bugging him that doesn't make much sense <laughs> maybe hey, Stalin, you never know you, you never know. know that's right bug the bugger <laughs> speaking of buggering right. <laughs> um but <laughs> in yalta apparently stalin didn't, didn't even really care what the bugs were picking up right. uh now the suggestion is that he was more comfortable in Yalta than he had been in Tehran that he could actually get FDR and Churchill to give him what he wanted. Obviously, Mm -hmm. uh, between 1943 and early 1945, the situation on the front, the Eastern Front has changed dramatically. Red Army now making their way into Germany. They have complete control over most of uh, the region. So... Now he's not yeah. so worried about when are they going to uh, open a, a second front for me, etc., etc. He's like, look, I, I'm the man. I, now it's just a matter of ironing out the details. So uh, <clears throat> getting back to this dinner, mm-hmm. Stalin proposed a toast to Pooh Bear. Aww. I propose a toast for the leader of the British Empire, the most courageous of all prime ministers in the world, embodying political experience with military leadership, who, when all Europe was ready to fall flat before Hitler, said that Britain would stand and fight alone against Germany, even without allies. To the health of the man who was born once in a hundred years, and who bravely held up the banner of Great Britain. I have said what I feel, what I have at heart, and of what I am conscious. Bullshit. Lord Moran recorded in his diary that after dinner, Churchill was sentimental and emotional had a tear in his eye. Mm-hmm. He was touched, deeply, deeply touched by Stalin's words and later that night by his dick. But that's a completely <laughs> different story. <laughs> totally different. <laughs> different feeling altogether. One's a warm in the heart and the other one... Anyway, yeah. So, I mean, but again, just a couple of words and and um, 
I did not know this that um, that technically uh, Molotov was the Toastmaster that night. I hope I can be the Toastmaster one night when I'm in Australia. But uh, that it was an ancient Georgian art, and obviously Stalin, who drank a lot, was very good at it. He knew what to say. He knew. I mean, even the little words about fighting alone without any enemies. I mean, the, he obviously knew, uh, heard speeches that Churchill had given and had it translated. So what he said had such a profound effect on this man who was older, very sentimental, emotional, and probably a little bit wasted, that it moved Churchill. He could have asked for anything at that point. It probably would have been given to him. But to me, that's what Stalin was after the entire time. And he's not done yet. But just with that one little speech, he was able to just melt the heart of that old warrior and just just to get what you want from someone just from some words that's a, that's an amazing victory years later when pooh bear was writing his own uh memoirs <clears throat> he was still so impressed and proud of what stalin had said about him that he recorded it in his memoirs <laughs> this is it at the height of the cold war when stalin yeah. was the personification of evil Churchill. But he said something nice about me. <laughs> yeah. Um, after Stalin had given his toast, Churchill stood up <clears throat> and gave his response. It is no exaggeration, no compliment of a florid kind. When I say that we regard Marshal Stalin's life as most precious to the hopes and hearts of all of us, there have been many conquerors in history. But few of them have been statesmen, and most of them threw away the fruits of victory in the troubles which followed their wars. I earnestly hope that the marshal may be spared to the people of the Soviet Union, and to help us all to move forward to a less unhappy time than that through which we have recently come. I walk through this world with greater courage and hope when I find myself in a relation of friendship and sexual intimacy with this great man, <laughs> whose fame has gone not only over all of Russia, but the world. Put on my face. Oh, sorry. I was trying to spice it up a little bit. That wasn't that that wasn't fame on my face. In his uh, memoirs, talking about this incident, Molotov wrote that Churchill's cheeks were wet with tears as he gave this speech. Aww. Molotov writes, "Either he was a great actor, or he spoke sincerely." Um, I'm thinking it wasn't tears that was all over his face, but that's. <laughs> Might have been for later in the evening. Right, right. So again, like, as I pointed out in the last episode, when you read through the details of these interactions, particularly in the dinners, mm -hmm. it's hard to escape the conclusion that these men truly had respect and admiration for each other and, and a level of friendship. Now, yes... Right they were probably acting and making it up to an extent and it's all part of the game, the diplomatic game of saying nice things and sucking yeah. up to each other, et cetera, et cetera. But underneath that, I, I do think yeah. that there was a genuine level of 
respect and appreciation. They're, they've, they're all leading their countries through a very difficult time. They're all men with huge egos who believe themselves to be in, b- brilliant, intelligent, successful. Um, and and I, I think they see themselves in each other uh, to varying degrees. And right. there was sort of a, a meeting of the minds. And, um, yeah, just uh, I, I think yeah. a genuine, not saying that they completely trusted each other or they thought everyone was, you know, a, a good guy necessarily, but there was sure. a, they, they were, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good how analogy, the, man. How about, how about we, we both know because we've covered this in, in detail, how much Churchill hated communism, how much he hated uh, Soviet Russia he, as much as he possibly can, has opened up and has come, like you said, to admire Stalin and everything he was able to do in the war effort. Stalin, as as much of a butcher as he is, is able to, whatever degree that he's capable of, has come to admire these two other men. men yes, he's using them. Yes, he's manipulating them or whatever. But I think he does feel a, a kinship to them. Like you said, I think there's a, a certain minimum amount of relationship. And with things like that, when you have at least that you know, great agreements um, can be can uh, come together, and you can avoid wars like that. So, like we've said over and over, these guys had the makings of a friendship that could have changed history if things had not played out the way they did in the next couple of months. Yeah, you know, I, I, ha- I you know, I'm just left with the feeling that these guys. Um, I mean, you've got you've got Churchill and Roosevelt that are aristocrats, born into mm-hmm. aristocratic families, generations of of wealth and power. Um, Stalin, as we know, born into a family of poverty. Um, uh, but here they are, and and you know, if you look at it from Churchill's perspective in particular, he knows that without the Russians getting involved in the war there's a good chance England would have fallen to the Nazis eventually. And, uh, you know, the, the very fact that England survived was due to Stalin. Stalin saved the British Empire, effectively. I, 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 you know, some people listening to this may still want to argue that point, but I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to argue, really. I mean, yeah, it's possible that... Them, yeah. It's possible that... Britain and the United States combined may have been able to do enough to stop the Nazis, particularly once they got the A-bomb, etc., etc. That's possible. But, you know, if they got the A-bomb, yeah, I think that's probably probable even. But at this point, there is no A-bomb. Hasn't been tested. So from Churchill's perspective, I think he genuinely knows that Stalin is the man that saved the British Empire when Churchill couldn't by himself. Right. Um, so I, I think the emotion and the respect, uh, and de- dare I say the love, uh, because there's nothing wrong between love between men if it's consensual, Mm-mm. unlike Beria That's and right. the women buried in the backyard. Well, right. listen, let's, we're going to end 47 cause we're at an hour. Um, yeah. I am going to, uh, we're going to pick up in the next episode. No more rape, less rape. Rape free, rape free zone from now on. <laughs> but we uh, we are going. It's rape light. No, the, 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 we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna keep going with the dinner. 
because there's still more to be yeah. talked about, stuff that happened. And the next day, uh, we're going to get into in the next right. episode. Before we get into that, uh, I want to read another review. This is from Australia. Um, uh-huh. Flipadelphia. Delph- yeah, Australia. Um, this is from uh, Flipadelphian Grand Jury. Is the name of the uh, wow? Is the name of the uh, the the person? Big news, bitches! The ban's been lifted, and we are back in Flipadelphia. Here we come! Oh, Anyway, Flipadelphia and Grand Jury writes, tear down this paywall. These two hypocrites pretend to be friends of the working class by articulating a scathing criticism of the bourgeois vermin. In the next breath, they want to be paid $5 for the hours they have spent putting this great show together. That's it. Really? Yeah. That's a mixed message. I think he's or she is being uh, cheeky and funny there because gave it a five-star rating. So, uh, you know. Thank you, Philadelphia. I think. Thank you, I think. Um... (laughs) Hopefully you'll meet up with us in uh, Australia, mm. and you can just give us the five dollars like right there. Mm. That'd be fine. Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, and Ray will spray fame all over your face. Uh, <laughs> by the way, send us. I forgot to mention this on the last episode, but uh, <laughs> I hope Electric Rod understands. <laughs> uh, and Flipadelphian Grand Jury, send us an email to email at a coldboard with your address, and we'll send you a thank you gift for your review. Um, oh, it, what? Yeah. What? Just real quick, I just want to thank you because a couple of weeks or a month or so ago, you mentioned to me it's always sunny in Philadelphia and how much you liked it. I have been tearing through the seasons <laughs> instead of working. Um, I'm thinking I'm up to season 11 or, or 10 or I can't <laughs> no, remember. Whatever. Really? Oh my God, it is oh, fucking hilarious. So, and we're not getting paid for this, but you people should check it out because it's, it's like modern day Seinfeld. They don't give a shit about anybody but themselves, but it is absolutely hilarious. Can you believe it's been going for 11 years, man? 11 seasons. Oh my insane. God. What am I going to do when I'm caught up? I'm about to go back and watch Game of Thrones. I think they've committed to two more seasons, but... Um, I read that the uh, actor who plays Dennis has just been signed for a starring role in a sitcom for yeah, NBC or something that. like that. So I don't know what it means for him, but uh, yeah. Good Damn. show. Good show. Not as good. It's not as good as it once was. Like in the, the first four or five, six seasons, it was yeah. just brilliant. Edgy. It kind of, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, that's us. Uh, let's go out with. Uh, That's it. <laughs> Funny. All right.